Chapter 3 of The Mystery of 31 New Inn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Seidel. The Mystery of 31 New Inn. Chapter 3 A Chiel's Among Ye Taken Notes. Part 1. The attitude of the suspicious man tends to generate in others the kind of conduct that seems to justify his suspicions. In most of us there lurks a certain strain of mischief, which trustfulness disarms but distrust encourages. The inexperienced kitten, which approaches us confidingly with arched back and upright tail, soliciting caresses, generally receives the gentle treatment that it expects, whereas the worldly wise tomcat, who, in response to friendly advances, scampers away and grins at us, suspiciously from the fancied security of an adjacent wall, impels us to accelerate his retreat with a well-directed clod. Now the proceedings of Mr. H. Weiss resembled those of the tomcat aforesaid, and invited an analogous reply. To a responsible professional man his extraordinary precautions were at once an affront and a challenge. Apart from graver considerations, I found myself dwelling with unholy pleasure on the prospect of locating the secret hiding-place from which he seemed to grin at me with such complacent defiance, and I lost no time and spared no trouble in preparing myself for the adventure. The very hansom which bore me from the temple to Kennington Lane was utilized for a preliminary test of Thorndyke's little apparatus. During the whole of that brief journey, I watched the compass closely, noted the feel and sound of the road material, and timed the trotting of the horse, and the result was quite encouraging. It is true that the compass needle oscillated wildly to the vibration of the cab, but still its oscillations took place around a definite point, which was the average direction, and it was evident to me that the data it furnished were very fairly reliable. I felt very little doubt, after a preliminary trial, as to my being able to produce a moderately intelligible track chart, if only I should get an opportunity to exercise my skill. But it looked as if I should not. Mr. Weiss's promise to send for me again soon was not fulfilled. Three days passed, and still he made no sign. I began to fear that I had been too outspoken that the shuttered carriage had gone forth to seek some more confiding and easy-going practitioner, that our elaborate preparations had been made in vain. When the fourth day drew toward a close, and still no summons had come, I was disposed reluctantly to write off the case as a lost opportunity. And, at that moment, in the midst of my regrets, the bottle-boy thrust an uncomely head in at the door. His voice was coarse, his accent was hideous, and his grammatical construction beneath contempt. But I forgave him all when I gathered the import of his message. Mr. Weiss's carriage is waiting, and he says you will come as quickly as you can, because he's took very bad tonight. I sprang from my chair and hastily collected the necessaries for the journey. The little board and the lamp I put in my overcoat pocket. I overhauled the emergency bag and added to its usual contents a bottle of permanganate of potassium, which I thought I might require. Then I tucked the evening paper under my arm and went out. 
The coachman, who was standing at the horse's head as I emerged, touched his hat and came forward to open the door. "'I have fortified myself for the long drive, you see,' I remarked, exhibiting the newspaper as I stepped into the carriage. "'But you can't read in the dark,' said he. "'No, but I have provided myself with a lamp,' I replied, producing it and striking a match. He watched me as I lit the lamp, and hooked it on the back cushion, and observed, "'I suppose you found it rather dull ride last time. It's a longish way. They might have fitted the carriage with an inside lamp. But we shall have to make it a quicker passage to-night. Governor says Mr. Graves is uncommon bad.' With this he slammed the door and locked it. I drew the board from my pocket, laid it on my knee, glanced at my watch, and, as the coachman climbed to his seat, I made the first entry in the little book. 8.58. W. by S. Start from home. Horse. Thirteen hands. The first move of the carriage on starting was to turn around as if heading for Newington Butts, and the second entry accordingly read, 8.58.30. E. by N. But this direction was not maintained long. Very soon we turned south, and then west, and then south again. I sat with my eyes riveted on the compass, following with some difficulty its rapid changes. The needle swung to and fro incessantly, but always within a definite arc, the center of which was the true direction. But this direction varied from minute to minute in the most astonishing manner. West, south, east, north, the carriage turned, boxing the compass until I lost all count of direction. It was an amazing performance, considering that the man was driving against time on a mission of life-and-death urgency. His carelessness as to direction was astounding. The torturousness of the route must have made a journey twice as long as it need have been, with a little more careful selection. At least, so it appeared to me, though naturally I was not in a position to offer an authoritative criticism. As far as I could judge, we followed the same route as before. Once I heard a tug's whistle and knew that we were near the river, and we passed the railway station apparently at the same time as on the previous occasion, for I heard a passenger train start and assumed that it was the same train. We crossed quite a number of thoroughfares with tram lines. I had no idea there were so many and it was a revelation to me to find how numerous the railway arches were in this part of London, and how continually the nature of the road metal varied. It was by no means a dull journey this time. The incessant changes of direction and variations in the character of the road kept me almost uncommonly busy, for I had hardly time to scribble down one entry before the compass needle would swing around sharply, showing that we had once more turned a corner and I was quite taken by surprise when the carriage slowed down and turned into the covered way. Very hastily I scribbled down the final entry, 924, S.E., in covered way, and, having closed the book and slipped it and the board into my pocket, had just opened out the newspaper when the carriage door was unlocked and opened, whereupon I unhooked and blew out the lamp and pocketed that too, reflecting that it might be useful later. As on the last occasion, Mrs. Shalabam stood in the open doorway with a lighted candle, but she was a good deal less self-possessed this time. In fact, she looked rather wild and terrified. Even by the candlelight, I could see that she was very pale, 
and she seemed unable to keep still. As she gave me the few necessary words of explanation, she fidgeted incessantly, and her hands and feet were in constant movement. "'You had better come up with me at once,' she said. "'Mr. Graves is much worse tonight. We will wait not for Mr. Weiss.' Without waiting for a reply, she quickly ascended the stairs, and I followed. The room was in much the same condition as before, but the patient was not. As soon as I entered the room, a soft, rhythmical gurgle from the bed gave me very clear warning of danger. I stepped forward quickly and looked down at the prostrate figure, and the warning gathered emphasis. The sick man's ghastly face was yet more ghastly. His eyes were more sunken, his skin more livid. His nose was as sharp as a pen, and if he did not babble of green fields, it was because he seemed to be beyond even that. If it had been a case of disease, I should have said at once that he was dying. He had all the appearance of a man in articulo mortis. Even as it was, feeling convinced that the case was one of morphine poisoning, I was far from confident that I should be able to draw him back from the extreme edge of vitality, on which he trembled so insecurely. "'Is he very ill? Is he dying?' It was Mrs. Shallabom's voice, very low, but eager and intense. I turned with my finger on the patient's wrist, and looked into the face of the most thoroughly scared woman I have ever seen. She made no attempt now to avoid the light, but looked me squarely in the face, and I noticed half unconsciously that her eyes were brown, and had a curious strained expression. Yes, I answered, he is very ill, he is in great danger. She stared at me fixedly for some seconds, and then a very odd thing occurred. Suddenly she squinted, squinted horribly, not with the familiar convergent squint which burlesque artists imitate, but with external or divergent squint of extreme near-sight or unequal vision. The effect was quite startling. One moment, both her eyes were looking straight into mine. The next, one of them rolled around until it looked out of the uttermost corner, leaving the other gazing steadily forward. She was evidently conscious of the change, for she turned her head away quickly and reddened somewhat. But it was no time for thoughts of personal appearance. You can save him, doctor. You will not let him die. He must not be allowed to die. She spoke with as much passion as if he had been the dearest friend that she had in the world, which I suspected was far from being the case. But her manifest terror had its uses. "'If anything is to be done to save him,' said I, "'it must be done quickly. I will give him some medicine at once, and meanwhile you must make some strong coffee.' "'Coffee!' she exclaimed. "'But we have none in the house. Will not tea do if I make it very strong?' No, it will not. I must have coffee, and I must have it quickly. Uh, then I suppose I must go and get some, uh, but it is late, the shops will be shut, and I don't like leaving Mr. Graves. Can't you send the coachman? I asked. She shook her head impatiently. No, that's no use. I must wait until Mr. Weiss comes. That won't do, I said sharply. He will slip through our fingers while you are waiting. You must go and get the coffee at once, and bring it to me as soon as it is ready, and I want a tumbler and some water. She brought me a water bottle and glass from the washstand, and then, 
with a groan of despair, hurried from the room. I lost no time applying the remedies that I had to hand. Shaking out into the tumbler a few crystals of potassium permanganate, I filled it up with water and approached the patient. His stupor was profound. I shook him as roughly as was safe in his depressed condition, but elicited no resistance or responsive movement. As it seemed very doubtful whether he was capable of swallowing, I dared not take the risk of pouring the liquid into his mouth, for fear of suffocating him. A stomach-tube would have solved the difficulty, but of course I had not one with me. I had, however, a mouth-speculum, which also acted as a gag, and having propped the patient's mouth open with this, I hastily slipped off one of the rubber tubes from my stethoscope, and inserted into one end of it a vulcanite ear-speculum to serve as a funnel. Then, introducing the other end of the tube into the gullet as far as its length would permit, I cautiously poured a small quantity of permanganate solution into the extemporized funnel. To my great relief, a movement of the throat showed that the swallowing reflex still existed, and, thus encouraged, I poured down the tube as much of the fluid as I thought it wise to administer at one time. The dose of permanganate that I had given him was enough to neutralize any reasonable quantity of the poison that might yet remain in the stomach. I had next to deal with that portion of the drug which had already been absorbed and was exercising its poisonous effects. Taking my hypodermic case from my bag, I prepared in the syringe a full dose of atropine sulfate, which I injected forthwith into the unconscious man's arm. And that was all I could do, so far as remedies were concerned, until the coffee arrived. I cleaned and put away the syringe, washed the tube, and then, returning to the bedside, endeavored to rouse the patient from his profound lethargy. But great care was necessary. A little injudicious roughness of handling in that thready, flickering pulse might stop forever. And yet it was almost certain that if he were not speedily aroused, his stupor would gradually deepen until it shaded off imperceptibly into death. I went to work very cautiously, moving his limbs about, flicking his face and chest with the corner of a wet towel, tickling the soles of his feet, and otherwise applying stimuli that were strong without being violent. So occupied was I with my efforts to resuscitate the mysterious patient that I did not notice the opening of the door, and it was with something of a start that, happening to glance around, I perceived at the farther end of the room the shadowy figure of a man relieved by two spots of light reflected from his spectacles. How long he had been watching me I cannot say, but when he saw that I had observed him he came forward, though not very far, and I saw that he was Mr. Weiss. I am afraid, he said, that you do not find my friend so well tonight. So well, I exclaimed, I don't find him well at all. I am exceedingly anxious about him. You don't uh, anticipate anything of a, um, or anything serious, I hope. There is no need to anticipate, said I. It is already about as serious as it can be. I think he might die at any moment. Good God, he grasped, you horrify me. He was not exaggerating. In his agitation he stepped forward into the lighter part of the room, and I could see that his face was pale to ghastliness, except his nose and the adjacent red patches on his cheeks, which stood out in grotesquely hideous contrast. Presently, however, he recovered a little and said, 
I really think, uh, at least I hope, that you take an unnecessarily serious view of his condition. He has been like this before, you know. I felt pretty certain that he had not, but there was no use in discussing the question. I therefore replied, as I continued my efforts to rouse the patient, that may or may not be, but in any case there comes a last time, and it may have come now. Oh, I hope not, he said, although I understand that these cases always end fatally sooner or later. What cases? I asked. I, I was referring to sleeping sickness, but perhaps you have formed some other opinion as to the nature of this dreadful complaint? I hesitated for a moment, and he continued, As to your suggestion that his symptoms might be due to drugs, I think we may consider that as disposed of. He has been watched practically without cessation since you came last, and moreover I have myself turned out the room and examined the bed and have not found a trace of any drug. Have you gone into the question of sleeping sickness? I looked at the man narrowly before answering, and distrusted him more than ever. But this was no time for reticence. My concern was with the patient and his present needs. After all, I was, as Thorndyke had said, a doctor, not a detective, and the circumstances called for a straightforward speech and action on my part. I have considered that question, I said, and I have come to a perfectly definite conclusion. His symptoms are not those of sleeping sickness. They are, in my opinion, undoubtedly due to morphine poisoning. But, my dear sir, he exclaimed, the thing is impossible. Haven't I just told you that he has been watched continuously? I can only judge by the appearances that I find, I answered, and seeing that he was about to offer fresh objections, I continued, don't let us waste precious time in discussion, or Mr. Graves may be dead before we have reached a conclusion. If you will hurry them up about the coffee that I asked for some time ago, I will take the other necessary measures, and perhaps we may manage to pull him round. The rather brutal decision of my manner evidently daunted him. It must have been plain to him that I was not prepared to accept any explanation of the unconscious man's condition other than that of morphine poisoning. Whence the inference was pretty plain that the alternatives were recovery or an inquest. Replying stiffly that I must do as I thought best, he hurried from the room, leaving me to continue my efforts without further interruption. For some time these efforts seemed to make no impression. The man lay as still and impassive as a corpse, excepting for the slow, shallow, and rather irregular breathing, with its ominous accompanying rattle. But presently, by imperceptible degrees, signs of returning life began to make their appearance. A sharp slap on the cheek with a wet towel produced a sensible flicker of the eyelids. A similar slap on the chest was followed by a slight gasp. A pencil, drawn over the sole of the foot, occasioned a visible shrinking movement, and on looking once more at the eyes, I detected a slight change that told me that the atropine was beginning to take effect. This was very encouraging, and, so far, quite satisfactory though it would have been premature to rejoice. I kept the patient carefully covered and maintained the process of gentle irritation, moving his limbs and shoulders, brushing his hair, and generally bombarding his deadened senses with small but repeated stimuli. And under this treatment the improvement continued so far that on my bawling a question into his ear, 
he actually opened his eyes for an instant, though in another moment the lids had sunk back into their former position. Soon after this, Mr. Weiss re-entered the room, followed by Mrs. Shallabaum, who carried a small tray on which were a jug of coffee, a jug of milk, a cup, and a saucer, and a sugar basin. "'How do you find him now?' Mr. Weiss asked anxiously. "'I am glad to say that there is a distinct improvement,' I replied. "'But we must persevere. He is by no means out of the wood yet.' I examined the coffee, which looked black and strong, and had a very reassuring smell, and— pouring out half a cupful, approached the bed. "'Now, Mr. Graves,' I shouted, "'we want you to drink some of this.' The flaccid eyelids lifted for an instant, but there was no other response. I gently opened the unresisting mouth and ladled in a couple of spoonfuls of coffee, which were immediately swallowed, whereupon I repeated the proceeding and continued at short intervals until the cup was empty. The effect of the new remedy soon became apparent. He began to mumble and mutter obscurely in response to the questions that I bellowed at him, and once or twice he opened his eyes and looked dreamily into my face. Then I sat him up and made him drink some coffee from the cup, and all the time kept up a running fire of questions, which made up in volume of sound for what they lacked in relevancy. Of these proceedings Mr. Weiss and his housekeeper were highly interested spectators, and the former— contrary to his usual practice, came quite close up to the bed to get a better view. "'It really is a most remarkable thing,' he said, "'but it almost looks as if you were right, after all. "'He is certainly much better. "'But tell me, would this treatment produce a similar improvement "'if the symptoms were due to disease?' "'No,' I answered, "'it certainly would not.' "'Then that seems to settle it. "'But it is a most mysterious affair.' Can you suggest any way in which he can have concealed a store of the drug? I stood up and looked him straight in the face. It was the first chance I had had of inspecting him by any but the feeblest light, and I looked at him very attentively. Now, it is a curious fact, though one that most persons must have observed, that there sometimes occurs a considerable interval between the reception of a visual impression and its complete transfer to the consciousness. A thing may be seen, as it were, unconsciously, and the impression consigned, apparently, to instant oblivion. And yet the picture may be subsequently revived by memory with such completeness that its details can be studied as though the object were still actually visible. End of chapter 3, part 1